Hello and welcome back to the Garden Podcast. Happy Valentine's Day, or happy Bleeding Heart Day as we like to say in the horticultural world. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine, and I'm speaking to you from the council room at our head office in Vincent Square in London, where we're just about to have some meetings about shows and forthcoming events. Each month in this podcast, I talk to people involved in creating the RHS monthly magazine, The Garden, and delve a bit deeper into some of the stories. Today, with the faintest hint of sunshine and a bit of warmth in the air in London, we're looking forward to spring and, of course, RHS show season. Can you believe we're talking about it already? This week sees the official press launch and announcement of what will be the stars of this year's RHS Chelsea Flower Show. It's always an exciting and well-attended event. I met up with Anissa Gress, our news editor, to find out what some of her highlights will be for the show season ahead. As usual, there's going to be a very impressive and very different mix of gardens along Main Avenue. You can't fail to be impressed every single year. I mean, we go year after year and we think, can they get any better? And they just always do. And they are just perfection each year. Obviously, this year we've got the RHS Back to Nature garden, which is very exciting to have the Duchess of Cambridge working on that garden with Adam White and, yes, and Andre. And it's going to be lovely. It's going to be a real kids garden you know all the lovely things that you remember about being a child in the garden going through logs and waterfalls and playing poo sticks and all those really beautiful things that just bring you back to nature and that would be lovely right in the middle of london to have that in the chelsea showground in the floral marquee the one thing i always look forward to is the chelsea plant of the year Mm. competition so what is the chelsea plant of the year and why do we do it Yeah, it's a really great competition and the reason we do it is to bring a focus on the plants themselves and to bring the spotlight onto the Great Pavilion. There are in excess of about 40 plants that get entered and the criteria is that they have to, and this is the first time that they're going to be shown to the consumer. That gets whittled down on the Sunday to about 20 and then those 20 go through to the final and then that gets decided on the Monday. It's always just really exciting so... uh, And and, and for you and me I know you know it puts the heart back into Chelsea doesn't it that celebration of the plants about the fashion the trends that people are always so desperate to find. Yes it does and what's always quite lovely about the competition it's not just perennials it's absolutely Mm. everything you get vegetables you get beautiful roses we have trees trees, yeah Yeah, I mean it's all there you know everything orchids it's all there and in fact the winner the very first time we did it was a houseplant so it really does cover absolutely everything and then outside to sort of mirror that we've got the Chelsea Garden product of the year competition Mm. which is also exciting because that shows what gardeners are going to be doing in their garden what they're going to be using and again you get this lovely completely eclectic mix of things that come up. From irrigation to oh, trowels to yeah, anything. Absolutely everything that you could possibly wear, want, use, whatever in your garden. And what about the range of gardens outside from the small to the big? What's caught your attention this year? Well, this year we've got the artisan gardens, which are the smaller gardens. I think we always look out for the Japanese tea gardens, which are just sort of perfection themselves. And they're lovely. And then we've got the space to grow gardens, which really try and show all the different things that you could use in a relatively modest space. So we're not looking at huge gardens here, we're looking at what you could create there. And then for the first year this year, we've got a show garden inside the Great Pavilion, and that's going to be the Tom Dixon Garden for IKEA, and that's going to be based on urban farming. So yeah, that's the first time we've got a show garden in the Great Pavilion, so that's that's quite different. 
So what will readers be seeing in the magazine? New this year, we've got something which we're calling From the Show Manager, and we're getting each show manager to do a little, just to pull out the thing that they're really excited about, and then that's kind of in their own words, which is quite nice, a little picture of them, and then the little gem that they're looking forward to. So what do we do at the shows? Before the show, everything gets divvied up, so we all know what we're doing. Everybody gets a certain amount of gardens that they need to cover. So we liaise with all the photographers. We have about three photographers, sometimes four there, making sure that we've got all the photographs so that they can be all put on to the website the day before the show opens. Then we, we have to caption our photographs. Then all that information is used by the web team. We obviously have that information then that we can then use in the magazine as well. So we then keep that information and then when we come to do our big shows review, the big roundup in September, we've got all that information there already. So we're obviously really looking forward to it because we always look forward to the shows and especially Chelsea because it is a very special show. But it's exhausting. I think one year we might put pedometers on and just see how far we walk Um, because in fact if we did that throughout the whole show thing I think we'd be quite surprised how many marathons we walked. Yeah, easy, our 10,000 steps, but it's very exciting but there's just an awful lot of work that goes on obviously behind the scenes to make sure the information gets out to the gardener. Anissa Gress, the news editor of The Garden magazine. If you're a member, you'll be getting this magazine in just a couple of days. And if you're not a member, why not? Hurry up and become one. It's a great alternative to a bunch of red roses for the flower lover in your life this Valentine's Day. For all the details on joining, please visit rhs.org.uk forward slash join. As editor, I'm currently making the final tweaks and amendments to the copy and the page proofs for the upcoming March issue. And as ever, I hope there's a bit of something in the magazine for everyone. There's a few things I just want to share with you. One is a practical project, a two-pager on making a potting bench out of pallets. It sounds horrendous, but it certainly isn't. And it's a really great way of using pallets if you've got some spare from an old project or a house extension like I have. We've also got a really evocative and timely spring garden. It's called Morton Hall in Worcestershire. And Stephen Lacey, that well-known garden writer, has visited. And it's all about low sunshine, misty and beautiful dampness in the morning with the daffodils, snakes head fritted areas coming up. It's a beautiful piece, really simple, a lot of space, but it just reminds you why spring is so important and why we can't wait to get there. We've also got a feature about the RHS Master Grower Initiative. And this is something, if you've ever been to one of our flower shows and you go into the floral marquee, we highlight and celebrate one particular nursery at all of our summer shows. It's been inventions come around the last two, three years, and it's a great way of the RHS supporting British independent plant nurseries. And also for our public to go and visit the shows and actually to get to know the growers behind these plants. They're non-judged exhibitions, so the um, exhibitor can relax a bit. They've got a bit more space. There's photography and video by Neil Hepworth, one of our regular photographers, and they're a really special way of really focusing on one plant group or one nursery and letting people revel in the beauty of what they create. And then there's one other thing I would just love to mention, which is an article which is quite curious, actually, because it's an essay, and we do these occasional essays to really get people thinking and to stimulate a topic. This month, it's by James Armitage, who is editor of The Plantsman magazine, the sister publication to The Garden. And he's questioning, quite oddly for a plantsman, whether we can have too many plants. I know, 
That's what I was thinking. Can you ever have too many plants? And his point is that not every new plant on the market is always better than the previous one. And so do we always need to keep them? Do we need to conserve every plant? Do we need to be a plantaholic and a collector? And actually, shouldn't we just be a little bit more judicious in working out what we should keep and is worth growing on? Or maybe that's come into the market and then actually think, nah, it's not worth keeping. I'll try something else. So it's a real good stimulating piece for us. And I really hope that people will respond and write into us and send us emails or contact us on social media to let us know what they think about the points that James is raising. One of the other features is by Mark Diacono, who is a very well-known garden writer and food writer. And he's actually starting a new occasional series for us all about taste. And this month he looks at rhubarb, about how to grow it and how to cook it. Mark, it may be late winter outside, but one of the beauties of working on a gardening magazine is that you're always looking ahead, always looking to the next season. And at this time of year, it's even better than normal because we feature your splendid article all about rhubarb. So tell me, before we get into the whys and wherefores of growing, how do you like to eat your rhubarb? Haha, <laughs> yes. Well, there's no point, is there, if, unless you've got lots of lovely ways of eating it. Um, I do quite a lot with it. I like roasting it really, really gently on a fairly low heat while I'm doing something else. So I just throw it in a roasting dish with hardly any sugar, especially if it's the forced stuff that comes first. A little bit of ginger, maybe tiny bit of honey. I bang it into gin, I'm afraid to say. But again, it's not hard to like, you know, chop it up. In it goes just with an inch of sugar, shake it up every day for a week or so. The rhubarb itself just, it leaches that lovely color, but also some of that flavor. And, and you don't even have to leave it that long. You know, a couple of months and it's really good. If you can leave it maybe six or seven months, it's a lovely way to take you into winter. So it's really great for savoury, for the desserts and for those little winter warmers. So, yeah, it's a big favourite with me. So tell me, we've talked about flavour. So let's get practical. Let's get gardening. How do you grow rhubarb and how do you grow it successfully? In many ways, rhubarb is that utility player in everybody's favourite football team who play at any position, they'll put up with any conditions. It can be quite tempting to give them nothing at all. And if you really want to get the best out of your rhubarb, and then give it what it wants. Plenty of sunshine, it wants a good soil that's well-drained, but also will, that's fairly moist too. Planting isn't, uh, you know, I always say this about a tree, but it's equally true with rhubarb. You know, you don't plant a 20 quid tree in a 20p hole and i'd say the same with rhubarb if you want to set it up well get the crown at the right height which is generally speaking for most soils just a centimeter or two below the the surface level don't put it into a soil that's going to get waterlogged then you've got a pretty good chance of it not rotting away and it will do well for you feed it and i like to feed in spring with a, a kind of good mulching compost so it does a number of things if you do that it keeps moisture in rhubarb likes a good bit of moisture in there it will feed the plant and again it's producing a lot for you and once you get where you're underway you're picking where you're picking you're picking it needs some little nudge along the way it will help to mulch out any weeds that might occur you can go a little bit further than that if you want and then liquid feed or some of the chicken manure pellets that are going to be effectively slow release if you put some of those around the crown but not in or on it and that will really help you along. And I think that's really worth the effort because they don't take much looking after. But if you go to that effort, you will get rewarded with stronger plants that are more long lived and you'll get a greater harvest off them. Should gardeners ever be concerned about maybe overcropping rhubarb? Can you actually damage the long term health of the plant by taking too many stalks away each year? Yes, you can. The generosity of the plant is a wonderful thing, but 
it's within limits you know it's like asking your mother-in-law to do too much babysitting you know to a certain level it's fine but go too far and uh, you know you'll be upsetting the one you didn't want to so what i would say is if you're planting this year don't pick anything when it comes to year two then take some stalks here and there but nothing too big even when it's productive i'd say don't pick more than a third of what's on offer at any one point and you get to judge it as soon as productivity starts to slow down a bit that's the time to stop you won't get more rhubarb out of your plant by over harvesting because next year you'll get much less they're such beautiful plants as well i always think you know just have another plant one of the highlights of this feature and i should say that it is a new occasional series we're going to be running is this balance between the culinary use of the crop and the gardening advice and that always includes our photographic plate the usp of the garden magazine where we compare and contrast different selections of a plant and in this instance we have nine different rhubarbs are there a couple that really shine for you uh, or from your experience are really good doers there really are chris one of the lovely thing about the list and um they are from the RHS collection and there's some wonderful ones in there that I know but there's also a couple that have made me go crikey I've got to try that raspberry red is one of my favorites you know really strong red stems you know, the color it's one of the pleasures of growing it is the color of the stem is so strongly colored really prolific it's an early one as well and at that time of the year to get something out of the garden that's edible and delicious is a really good thing so I'm very attached to raspberry red Hawk Champagne is interesting because not that many people grow it, but they really should. It's quite different in a lot of ways to Raspberry Red in that the stems are longer, slightly thinner, more towards the lighter colour that you might get if it had been forced. And it is actually a very good one for forcing and very reliable. It's sweeter. So I'm quite attached to that one as well. It starts a little bit later than Raspberry Red. I'd say those two, but I, I quite fancy trying German wine in both senses of the word. That one is supposed to be really, really sweet. Now, I'm very attached to sour flavours, and it's interesting that there's been quite a shift towards sweeter rhubarb, but this one is supposed to be wonderful and very good to be eaten raw as well. So I, I want to try German wine, but Hawks Champagne and Raspberry Red are just two crackers. And there really are some quite evocative names in this selection of rhubarb that we've got, aren't there? Like Grandad's Favourite or Laxton's Number One. It's a reminder, surely, of the heritage of this fruit in our gardening history. It's really lovely because, again, this rhubarb's one of those great plants. And I, and I know most plants are, but with rhubarb it's a bit more obvious, you know, that it's had quite a wonderful journey to get here. But also it's it's one of those plants that we feel... It's one of ours. It's like the apple. You know, wherever the apple is, every country feels like it's their plant. And I feel like that's us with rhubarb as well. You know, we've got that real heritage of growing it. And, it, you know, the names, they call up people in the past who developed them, who brought them on, who've grown them, who places in the country where they've been popular and where they've grown. And I think that is part of the pleasure with rhubarb. You know, you're the latest in a long line of people who've done the same. You've spoken so eloquently, and it's always great to talk to you, Mark, and you're so excited about rhubarb, and I'm sure that you've convinced anybody listening that they should be having at least one in their garden. But are there any developments we should be aware of in terms of breeding for size, flavour or colour? It's really interesting, the, the developments in rhubarb, and indeed a lot of sour flavours. Something like rhubarb, I think it's quite a challenging flavour for some. We've got a relatively sweet tooth these days. But I still love all the sourness, so it's quite nice to have a contrast. And I think I'll always make sure I've got varieties that give me something that's very sour all the way through to the pretty sweet. But a lot of those developments have been coming at the sweet end. Whether that continues will be interesting because 
there's such an upsurge in all the sour flavors these days all the fermented drinks all the fermented vegetables all of that stuff so it may be that actually our palates are slightly getting more accustomed to the sour so those other sour varieties may come along again but also a lot of the development's been happening on seasonal side of things getting plants that will produce more early in the year but interestingly, also to produce at the other end, long, a long season is quite an aim with anything like this so that you can get a long picking period. But there are varieties. There's one called Livingstone that is a fairly recent development that will produce both in the mid-season, but also later, later in the season. So you, in effect, you get a double crop, which is, again, really nice. And the fact that it's had chance to relax in the middle where you're not picking and then it still comes back again, I think that's really attractive. Mark, many thanks for your fascinating chat and your great article. I should also pay thanks to James Curtis, who was our head chef at RHS Garden Hyde Hall in Essex, and he's been cooking a lot of the rhubarbs featured in the article. And as a balance between you, Mark, and James, it's a really useful article. So once again, many thanks. And finally, autumn colour. Yes, I know, we have got to talk about it, I'm afraid. Now is the perfect time for sowing seed for summer to raise plants for glorious summer and autumn colour. Many gardeners focus on planting annuals, but our author, Ursula Chomley, believes there are some outstanding perennials that will not only bloom in the first year, but continue to do so year after year after year. So what would you say are the main benefits of first-year flowering perennials, and why should we grow them? Well, they expand your choice. If you're looking purely at bedding plants, that's annuals, then you have a great range. But if you expand to perennials, you have a greater range of plants that you can use that will flower in the first season and they have the benefit that you still have the plant at the end of the year. You can either overwinter it under cover or you can go on to just split it in the spring and move them maybe to your other borders if you're growing a row of flowers for display in the first year. Because I think this is something that people really do forget, and I mention it in my editorial this month as well, that actually we can grow annuals, but then we put them in the, on the compost heap at the end of the year, and we've spent all that time, money and effort. Whereas with first-year flowering perennials, you get the flower in the first year, but then you get this long-lived plant that will stay in your garden for years to come. It seems quite odd to me that more people don't remember to do this. I think it's possibly because there are some perennials like the hellebore, for instance, or geraniums that are tough to grow from seed and it's maybe for the beginner is better to left to the nurseryman and buy as a small plant. And perhaps that's given a perception that perennials are difficult from seed, but some of them will germinate so quickly. Penicetum, the grass, will be up in a week. It's just quite extraordinary germination rate. And in fact, you'll, you wonder why you didn't ever grow it as an annual in previous years. One of the things that people might not know about you is that you're the owner and the creator of Eastern Ward Gardens in Lincolnshire, which is also an RHS partner garden. And that really has been an amazing exercise uh, in you um, going back to the bones and creating and establishing a garden. Did you actually use any first-year flowering perennials over the last few years to give the colour some height and interest and texture? Well, what's been really interesting is that um, increasingly, as I've learnt over the years to grow is how often I revisit Edwardian gardening books and there it was all about how you can get the best out of the plants that you have rather than trying to fill your garden with masses of different varieties and you know whether you can force them that they were always very inventive looking for ways of how you might use plants and certainly first year perennials flowering perennials does give you that opportunity to really make the most of the plants that you have so we might grow a rabecchia or a coriopsis 
that will flower in the first year for our cut flowers and then we might move them or we might leave a row in the cut flower bed for a second year of flowering and that just saves on a bit of labour for raising plants for the next year. So based on on your experience at Eastern Ward Gardens, have you got any tips for really successful growing of these first year flowering? Well, we haven't talked too much about growing them in containers, and they also can be very successful um, mm. grown in containers. So tend to be larger containers they'll be better off in. Particularly, I'm thinking of Gaura and Salvia Payton's Blue Angel. Really, the more space you can give them, the better they are. So that's a good tip is to plant them in larger pots than you might do for bedding plants. And, and you can also, if, if you're using them in containers, it might be for that annual summer impact, but then you obviously just take the plants out and plant them in the ground for the following year. Exactly. I mean, they would work superbly well. In fact, it's almost like, why well, don't we always do that? <laughs> no, I was um, going to say, yeah. <laughs> this might be the new normal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think other tips are try and think about planting three seeds to a cell and allowing all three seedlings to grow so that you end up with what looks like one big plant for the summer. And then when you come to move them or split them in the autumn, you've got three plants that you can just take apart and plant out as three young perennials. So you sort of get the best of both worlds, really. So that's worth trying. A lot of them do need some bottom heat for good germination. So it might be worth investing in a very small heated propagator. You can buy them from DIY stores and things. And it's just it's a seed tray with a clear lid on it which will have an element in the base so that you can have some heat coming up from the bottom so you just need an ordinary plug to plug it into a wall to get some heat going from the bottom. And one other thing um, before I let you go what about looking after the plants in terms of their habit and size is there any benefit in that first year of keeping them quite small or enforcing a delayed flowering or pruning them to ensure that they establish a good root system rather than put all the energy onto flowering or have you found that it doesn't really make much difference? I think certainly you can make sure that the young plants, when you plant them out, have the best possible start. So you might look at adding some fertiliser into the hole when you plant them out. Be careful to mix the fertiliser with the soil so that it doesn't end up burning the tender roots that are just going into the ground. And that will give your plants an initial boost so that they can have the best possible start to give you some colour. But some of them are so good that they will go, if you've got them under a wall, they'll still be in flower in November. So really you can afford to wait really with them. Are there any other ideas that you have about how you use and combine these first year flowering perennials with other plants Ursula? Well I think they have great versatility because they possibly have a a different raison d'etre for growing and they haven't been grown to be compact very often they haven't been developed as annual bedding they do have a lovely habit some of them and they do weave very well through other plants we use penicetum with zinnia red spider for instance I love using verbena bonariensis with almost really any annual that can compete with its height. Cleome violet queen is an excellent example of something that would go very well with that. It gives you an extra palette really to work with when you're thinking about colours, textures, whether that's in a container, in the ground or in a bunch of flowers. So I, I would say give them a go. Well, I think that's great advice, and I, for one, can't wait, as we sit here in a bit of a miserable February, to start planning my borders and get sewing. So, Ursula Tomley, for the time being, many thanks indeed. It's my pleasure.
Well, that's almost all we've got time for in today's podcast, but there's one more thing I just want to mention, and that's the RHS Photography Competition. We've just got a couple more weeks of this brilliant competition. It closes at 10 a.m. on the 1st of March, so we've only got a couple more weeks. It's free to enter, so there's no reason why you can't submit five images. Just go onto the website, rhs.org.uk forward slash photocomp, put your images there, and we'll be selecting them and judging them in April. And you can win more than £10,000 worth of prizes. In the next podcast, we'll be talking all about the state of British independent plant nurseries, and we'll also be talking about that very topical topic of plastic. Until then, from all the team in The Garden magazine, from me, Chris Young, goodbye. Goodbye.